Good morning. So our um, second lesson begins in the um, ninth, it's in the ninth chapter of Romans, beginning in the first verse. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Here ends the word. What we discover in this text from Romans 9 this week is that the heart matters. That why we do what we do matters. Whether it's uh, our motive uh, that has to empower us to do good or for wrong. Whether it's our legal system that uh, judges some of what we do by our motives or even the Ten Commandments with the, with the commandments about coveting. Our heart matters. The reason why matters. I mean, if you bring flowers, if you bring flowers home, then, and you do it because you had a fight with your spouse, that, that means one thing, Right? But if you bring flowers home just because, that means something else altogether. The heart that we do something with most certainly matters. You only have to go to the sideline of a, a youth sporting event here in Albuquerque to get a little glimpse of some of those motives. For example, you get everything on the sideline from a family member who just is lovingly supporting their uh, young person there shouting, touchdown, at a baseball game, right? <laughs> or the experts on the sideline 
giving expert advice to those playing on the field. I'm not talking about the coaches, right? Shouting it out as loud as they can hear, whether it's for the coach or for the uh, player. There are all kinds of different motives that we have. And those motives oftentimes get revealed. Is it for me and living out uh, what I want to see through you or is it for you? And I share that this morning because our motives get revealed, not only ours, but here in the ninth chapter of Romans, God's motive gets revealed. The motive of a God whose heart is for us. That spirit of adoption continues in chapter 9, that spirit of a father's love. Give you another example. Derek Redmond speaks today often as a motivational speaker. That's where I heard him recently on YouTube. But 30 years ago, In the Barcelona Olympics, he was just trying to finish the race. He'd fallen, maybe some of you remember. He could barely walk. And that's when his dad, pushed by all kinds of officials, and somehow made his way to be there for his son, who just wanted to finish the race. He was in agony. That's when this happened. And his son, in pain and in disappointment, in pain physically, and in his hopes being lost, but he wanted to finish. And his father helped him as he hobbled to finish that race. There were those who tried to stop them from finish, and his father pushed them away, and they kept going. You see, hardly anyone remembers who won that race. But many people remember. It's why it's one of the, considered by some, one of the top 10 Olympic moments in the last several years. Derek Redman and his father crossed that finish line. And now even 30 years later, hundreds of thousands continue to flock to YouTube, which wasn't even around then to watch and see and hear his story. There's a reason it captures our hearts because motives matter. His dad helped him finish the race. In Romans 9, we get a glimpse of that kind of fatherly love, a God who is for us. We hear that in chapter 8. And some have said that when you get to chapter 9, it kind of takes this negative bummer kind of turn from this high point of nothing can separate us from God to this low point of, oh, and uh, at the same time, I need to tell you about my sorrow for those who have not come. No, what we get in that sorrow is a glimpse of love of a God who not only created us, but created the race. For at the end of chapter 8, we hear this word pitho in Greek, where we translate 
persuaded, I'm persuaded, or I am sure, or it gets translated, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then we turn the page and we hear as in the translation in the message, we hear these words, and at the same time, you need to know that I'm sorrowful. Martin Luther points out that love can sometimes be sorrowful. That, as we'll know, and many of us have experienced, that grief is often a form and expression of our love as we miss someone. For what we hear as the apostle shares his heart for his people isn't just his heart, but really God's heart for all of his people, all of us adopted in who are now by faith called to be his chosen people. And when his chosen people who he had so faithfully covenanted with weren't receiving this gift, it wasn't, as another author put it, God's anger that was getting revealed here, but instead the broken heart of God that lies behind Paul's words. And so we continue to turn the page into this chapter and uncover that heart of God. Like many before me, I thought turning into this chapter that it was going to be a sort of parenthesis. You know, you get the argument going all the way to chapter 8, and then you get chapters 9, 10, and 11. They don't seem to fit the storyline. But then upon further study and reflection, I think even some of our scholars who think that may be wrong because I think what happens in chapter 9 is another example of God being for us. And it begins in verses 1 and 2 with this terrible word. We say, and often it gets translated in English, accursed. That Paul would be willing to be accursed if only his people would come to the Lord Jesus. But Paul is only a reflection of God's heart. And that word accursed is even worse in Greek. It's anathema. That is devoted to God for destruction. Paul was willing to give up his very salvation if God's people would come to Jesus. But it wasn't Paul who became an anathema to God to redeem the people of God. No, it was Jesus. Jesus became that anathema. He became the curse. He took on the curse on the cross. And who is this Jesus? Verse 5 tells us, interestingly, very specifically. Now, in many places throughout the New Testament, we see in very explicit and implicit ways that Jesus is God. But only in a handful of places... Do we hear the word theos, 
the Greek word for God, applied directly to Jesus. And that we have here in verse 5 is one of those places. Who is this Jesus who becomes the anathema, that takes on the curse so that God's people could be saved? As we translate in English, the Lord God over everything. Jesus is the Lord God. He is Theos. He is God. God himself takes on the curse. And so this Jesus, who is God, in the spirit of adoption, who calls both those who he has been so faithful to, his chosen people, and to those grafted in, you and I, the Gentiles, we discover as we continue reading this text that this kind of compassion, this kind of action, this kind of getting into the game, putting skin on and being there with us is nothing new. To be a child of God, as we will read throughout this chapter, is to be a child of the promise, being a descendant of that promise. In fact, we get examples of those descendants chosen by God's will, elected by God. We get troubled by this word election or sometimes referred to as predestination. But it's really a continuation of the argument that we've been hearing in the first eight chapters that you are saved by God. In Romans 5, we get a hint of that anathema when he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 6, for the wages of sin and death are death, but the free gift of God in Christ Jesus, it's God's action, God's will. And so we should have no surprise then that God has been acting like this all along. It wasn't the work of Abraham's flesh that brought about the promise. The promise didn't come through Ishmael, through the work that he'd done, Abraham, that is, to arrange to have a son. No, it came through the miracle of new life that God gave to him and Sarah and Isaac. And so the promise came through Isaac. And when Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau, it wasn't the gift of Esau that brought about the promise. It was once again, not even the goodness of Jacob, that's for sure. It was God's good will. He chose the promise to be given to Jacob. And what might seem troubling and arbitrary to us Luther reminds us is that the way of man is exertion. But it doesn't depend on our exertion. It depends on God. Luther will go on to say regarding this text that what's remarkable is not that one who runs the race, but the one who gives and created it. It's not just remarkable that Derek Redmond wanted to finish the race 
It's that there was one who lifted him up and enabled him and grieved and walked with him and carried him across the finish line in many regards. It's the promise from a transcendent God. So Jesus is the better Abraham. He keeps the faith. Jesus is the better Isaac. He makes the sacrifice. Jesus is the better Jacob. He fulfills the promise. Jesus brings us, we'll hear later in this chapter as it talks about the exodus, a better exodus, a complete salvation, a rescue from sin. Jesus is Theos. Jesus is God. He takes on the curse, the anathema. He completes this. And so you and I can have new life. New life. I like how one author said about this text that there's a couple of different ways that we can respond to this text wrongly. One is, I'll just do it myself. I'll make it there. And we begin to see that as much as that might resonate with us, we can't do it on our own. The other response is to say that Since God is doing this, I don't have to do anything. This too is a false understanding of how to live into this new calling. Even earlier this morning when we baptized two young boys, not only did we baptize them freely into Christ, we lit a candle and gave them a job description to let their light so shine before others that they might glorify their Father who is in heaven. Or to say it another way, from Acts chapter 16, and we'll hear more about this next week in Romans 10, we are called to believe in the Lord Jesus, the Theos, the one who took on the curse. And when we do, we will be saved. This is the new life we get to live into, lighting and showing the light of Christ. That turns us to the end of our reading for today. In verses 15 and 16, we find out something very important. In the Greek text, it reads, as Luther will point out, mercy and mercy and compassion on compassion. And he's really quoting from Exodus 33 at this point. And when you read it from the Hebrew, it's also gracious to whom I'm gracious. And so we have mercy and compassion and grace being revealed through the will of God. This is God's heart for us. God is the one. Jesus is the one who justifies. Jesus is the one who completes and does justice. We have no claim on God, but he graciously claims us. And so God's heart is for his covenanted people. God's heart is for his adopted people that all would believe in the Lord Jesus who is God. So what is God's heart? Well, it's broken for us. He gets us back on track. 
And he does it by being with us. He takes on that anthem, that curse. And we find out in this text that God's election is nothing new. It's been his will all along. And we see it through his faithfulness through each generation in Old and New Testament. And remember who does this. God, who is Jesus. And so I'll end with this promise that we heard and saw in Psalm 27 today. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord, Jesus, the Theos, the Lord, is the stronghold, the stronghold of my life. Amen.